Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. Let's do that. Let's create a meme. Let's create some digital content. Let's throw it all against the wall and start creating and knowing it's okay that 80, 90% of what you're making is going to suck. That's just the way it is. And to know that that's okay and focus on the stuff that worked. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Marketing Millennials. I have another fellow millennial today. You might see him on Twitter. He is known in the finance, personal finance realm. And I'll give him, let him give a little intro, but he's been marketing to millennials for the last 10 to 15 years. So excited to have Douglas on the podcast. Welcome, Douglas. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks, Daniel. Um, do you want to give a little intro how you got into marketing and, and specifically in the personal finance space? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I grew up grew up the son of a certified financial planner and, and more or less got roped into the family business. I would walk away from that within a few years of, of really getting trained up and moved to New York City, October 2008. Obviously, the sky's falling from an economic perspective. I thought I was on a round trip ticket from Florida to New York and back home. Just, you know, given how bad things were, you know, here I am choosing to work in finance when pretty much the entire financial world is melting down. But survived that, learned learned a lot. And I had an epiphany going to business school at nighttime of, all right, you know, I had to answer this question of how was I going to grow a wealth management practice of my own? And I was looking around my classroom at nighttime. And that's when I had that epiphany of everyone around me here, my my peers, you know, then I would how old? I mean, we're talking nine years ago at that point, if not longer. You know, everyone in their mid twenties, you know, now older millennials, and they were all working their butts off, working all day long to come to school at night. And I said, "Yeah, this is pretty impressive. Like the people I've surrounded myself with here are all trying to overcome that rough start of two thousand eight, and that's who I want to work with, right? And and that was a long game inherently. Like you're talking about financial planning and wealth management for 20 something year olds there's just not a lot of wealth to manage and the advice that you could give is limited but i was watching my then girlfriend now wife graduate from law school and a lot of our friends be saddled with student loan debt and and really not know how to navigate their financial lives whatsoever so that that's when the light bulb went off and said hey i'm i'm going to work and and be one of the first advisors to really specifically work with my generation, millennials. And you know the rest is kind of history, but that's where I started to really dig in and try and figure out how are we going to do that? How do we market to a demographic that really hasn't been marketed to before in financial services? And if we could successfully do that, get a first mover advantage and grow with that demographic over a very long period of time, here we are 10 years later plus, and I still feel like we have another 10 years to go, but there's a lot of success and wins that have come out of doing that. So that's kind of what set it all off and you know, diving deeply into the needs of the generation. My wife and I wrote a book uh, specifically about this in, in 2017 called The Millennial Money Fix. 
which explored how the generation found themselves in the position that they were in through student loan debt as a result of the great recession. How are we going to get to become homeowners? How are we going to become parents and, and kind of do these classic great things in life our parents and grandparents have been able to do, but on our own terms and dealing with the, the financial challenges that we uh, were facing uh, specifically as millennials. I want to dig into a little bit. So let's take first start and say, how has the genera- millennials changed from you marketing to them 2008 period to now 2023? And the second question I'll also be like, what is the difference between a millennial that's on the end of the spectrum versus like the 28 year old that's like, yeah, like probably starting to make some money. They're not like fully established. They're probably starting to think about some are thinking about kids, some th- are thinking about getting them a higher job. Some people are thinking about buying a house. How, what's the difference between those two? So, the first question I'll, I'll repeat that is like, how has it changed over the years? And second is like the differences between both of them. Absolutely. And then those two questions are related. So, for the first one, what began as creating solid foundations and navigating people's lives around uh, a lot of student loan conversations. That was a really big topic. You had high achieving millennials coming out of undergrad and, and more importantly, graduate degree programs like law school or business school, medical programs, you know, with hundreds, multiples of hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans and uh, a job environment that really wasn't catering to the income needed to go pay back those loans and thrive as a professional. Also, how to navigate rough job environment and lower earning uh, power than I guess what was promised, for lack of a better word. You know, there was this social contract put out there by older generations that if you just educate yourselves and take out the debt, you'll they'll it'll pay for itself, right? You'll you'll be fine. And you know, in the wake of 2008, that that wasn't really true. So getting out of that hole and creating some equal footing so you could then find your ways into those those goals that we all shared of whether it was home ownership or settling down and starting families or even just owning assets right just uh you know that's like you'll own nothing and be happy no i don't i don't think there's really too many millennials that are down with that idea of owning nothing i think we all very much want similar things to our parents and grandparents' generation. Everybody wants to be happy and feeling financially free and independent. So that's where it kind of started. How do we wrap our heads around the current economic environment uh, that was created from 2008 until like 2010 and 11? And then it became, how do we thrive in a low interest rate environment, right? And I think that probably was beneficial, not just to all asset holders, but even beneficial to millennials who were looking to you know, participate in some of those areas of life uh, that they wanted, like home ownership. Granted, home prices have only been on the rise from then until, uh, especially now, post COVID. But uh, at least you could borrow uh, at very low rates. You could refinance your student loan debt at very low rates. You could start to mold and shape your financial life, you know, a little bit better, assuming you were able to have that job and increase your earning power. And and a lot of that was available. To millennials from 2011 through 2020, before things got really weird with COVID. Um, and we're still kind of trying to find equilibrium there. Um, and then here we are 10 years later, 15 years later, depending on when you're starting. And we're, we're past maybe some of those foundational needs. 
Uh, we now have greater responsibilities and less free time than ever before. Uh, we've started families where, you know, if we bought homes in low interest rate environments, we're, we're kind of stuck here now, uh, unless you're doing super well and, and, you know, you can just go finance a new home purchase yourself without necessarily, or afford seven, eight percent mortgage rates and super high cost. But home ownership aside, saving for kids, uh, education. Now we're getting into, you know, stuff that, isn't so much foundational. It's now how do we actually become accumulators of wealth? And our generation, you know, doesn't hold nearly uh, enough of that. You know, it's the older generations that are truly the wealth holders around here. But we're trying to break out and break into that. Also dealing with, you know, clearly some societal and financial issues around power dynamics from older managers or politicians. Any power structure here that still sits with older generations, you have able and willing younger generations and millennials and Gen X specifically who are waiting here to demonstrate that they're highly educated, highly capable, and are just not getting that transfer of power here. And it's perhaps growing into frustration and maybe a little bit of resentment there. So there's a lot of feelings around that and a lot of realities that are obviously a lot better than where we had started. Now, look, I also deal with, you know, Achieve, you know, high achievers. So there's a good portion of the generation that, you know, has not dug themselves out of a hole, has not established that foundation. And it does get harder whether wages have grown uh, for them or not. So I don't say this as if the entire generation has benefited over the last 10 plus years. It certainly has been a struggle for many. And the second part of your question or the second question of, you know, the differences between someone like me who's 38, I joke that I'm a geriatric millennial or just a elder millennial, if you will, versus let's say my 28 or 27 year old counterpart. Yeah, that, that's a very, you know, you get the two of these people in a room having a conversation. They're very different phases of life, right? I'm pretty sure the 27 year old who may be just thinking about that long-term relationship, having that convo with me, two young kids, you know, been married for 10 years, trying to grow a business. These are going to be two very different things, but we're all, we're all kind of bound together by um, experiences that we share, whether that's yeah, how native we are to technology, you know, cultural references, where we sit positionally across all demographics. I think we share a lot of that in common. But yeah, as far as where we, where we are in, in our lives, it's probably de- different phases. But again, that's not always true. I know plenty of late 20-something-year-olds, you know, with kids and owning property and trying to accumulate wealth just the same. How has marketing to them changed over the years? Like, how have you thought about like positioning yourself in the market to where when you first came out, we were in a recession trying to dig our way out. And now we're kind of, for some millennials, now we're kind of in a like a kind of silent recession for some people with like interest rates so high, inflation so high. Like, how, how do you think about marketing to? this group one of the things that i took to heart when thinking about ultimately marketing or selling to you know my generation was paying attention to the things we we really do and don't like and that sounds obvious but you have to still tease those things out for example like when i was being taught how to engage prospects in hopes of closing on business whether that was for financial planning services or investment management services you know, here I am being taught by my father, arguably a great, you know, good financial advisor. Um, you went for the close, like in that in that pitch meeting or in that prospect meeting. 
And I always thought like, there's no one in my entire generation that wants to, you know, be pitched like that, that wants to feel like, you know, they have to make a decision in ultimately, you know, uh, a conversation around, am I going to help take care of you and, and help you with your financial life? You know, I thought that was a big turnoff, not just for me, but for anyone in the generation, like who wants to be pressured, right? Like, can I get some time? It's a big decision. It costs money. Let me get some time to think about that. Like it was the anti-sell. Like I really thought and still do believe to this day, like don't be forcing stuff down people's throats. Like give them time to think. That's how I would want to go about this. It's a big decision. Do the opposite of that. And that's something that I don't think really has changed all that much, at least on the initial approach. But I do think that the older we've gotten, the more our time has become restricted and valuable. And perhaps there's other other avenues when someone already is your client and you're trying to implement advice that you've given that you actually want to perhaps be a little bit more direct or put a little bit more time parameter around that. When you're in your early 20s, you know, you feel you're invincible, you know, not to quote Justin Bieber in here, but young blood does think there's always tomorrow, right? And that's kind of weaned off here now that we're, you know, in our late 30s, early 40s. Time has definitely become more precious. I know we're all trying to get it in, certainly when you add kids to the equation. So to me, that uh, is something that has shifted. The biggest one that I think has not whatsoever shifted at all is relatability, right? Specifically with the types of services that you know we provide, we're helping people make great decisions around money in their lives, and having someone who's going through life with them, you know, a, a contemporary, uh, provides a great deal of relatability. So, in any marketing effort that I've had, is how can I relate to the people that I'm trying to attract to become clients? I didn't really see how effective it was for someone in their 60s, mid to late 60s, trying to court someone in their you know mid to late 30s was a really relatable experience outside that that person might have a child that person's age. I didn't really think that was attractive for establishing long-term relationships. It's not impossible. It's just obviously more difficult. So the relatability component, a huge factor that has never really wavered from when I was approaching people in our 20s to where we are now in our late 30s. The first point you made with anti-selling and playing the long game with relationship building, I think one thing that it has really changed, at least for like our generation and then the generation in low, is like we now are bombarded digitally with a bunch of things. And for like the, the older generation, Gen X, there was only a few ways to get a like a hold of someone. You either like saw a TV ad, you either got a direct mail or you got a call um, or you saw a billboard. Like it wasn't, so it was like the competition and like the amount of marketing and the amount of selling they saw was very limited to what now millennials are seeing. And now what, even now what Gen X are seeing now, but millennials are like used to, grew up with the digital age of, Getting bombarded all the time with selling. So now, like the people who are relationship building, being relatable, being funny, being whatever, are sticking out because they are competing against a bunch of digital real estate that has been taken up in our minds. And then now you said adding on top of that, we don't have much time and think time's important. 
if we're getting bombarded, we only have a few hours on the phone. Like, how are you going to be able to stick out in those few hours that a millennial gets to be on their phone with all the stuff that's going on in life? Um, not a lot of personal finance people are great marketers. Like, how did you like figure out like how to early stick out? Besides being relatable and not selling, but like, what are like some marketing efforts you did that started like separating you from the pack from other market? I mean, other personal finance people. Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I, I definitely agree that most financial advisors are actually terrible at marketing. <laughs> Awful. <laughs> Partly because uh, there's a lot of restrictions through compliance apparatus, right? So if you're working for a large financial firm, uh, they're always building compliance around the village's biggest idiot. So even if you are savvy or know what you're doing, you're, you're really restricted from having your own unique voice. Most large broker dealers and organizations don't don't want that for more liability and compliance purposes and control. I mean, that's should go, you know, that's pretty, pretty obvious, but that's the environment I think a lot of folks are working in. And I was very fortunate to be in it, you know, more, more, not lax, but more understanding and um, proactive environments with the organizations that I was working with. And now I'm completely independent. And it's, yeah, I'm, I'm the one calling those shots and uh, got to a point where, you know, I felt comfortable doing that after all the years of doing it within larger uh, apparatus. I knew from growing up and becoming a digital native and very kind of privileged comment here to have a computer in the household since a, an early age. My brother and I were into all things gadgets and gizmos. And, you know, if it was a computer, you know, we wanted to know more about it. I wanted to play all the video games, my, my brother doing a better job and, you know, figuring out how these things worked and then sharing that, that knowledge with me, we could both build computers, he could do a better job on programming and stuff like that. And I tell you this because I, I knew that our generation millennials is the first and last generation to have the appreciation for a non-internet world and an internet world. And I really do think that makes us special, that we can have an appreciation for, you know, the analog as well as the digital. I don't think, you know, Gen Z and younger, you know, they obviously don't know a world where the internet didn't exist. So I knew the trend of being a digital native and understanding how technology and the internet side of things works would be absolutely critical to any business, especially mine, uh, where it was not being used, where there weren't digital creatives. And now today there are no shortage of content creators uh, and digital marketers catering to the financial services industry. But when I started to poke around in that, like stumbling across, you know, like for example, as cliche as this is, you stumble across like Gary V nine, 10 years ago, who's who who giving you permission you know, to be creative in whatever industry or, or service you're providing. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, let's do that. Let's create a meme. Let's create some digital content. Let's throw it all against the wall and start creating and knowing it's okay that 80, 90% of what you're making is going to suck. That's just the way it is. And to know that that's okay and focus on the stuff that worked. So for me, that was SEO, I think is still the biggest game changer. Uh, I knew that nobody was competing for keywords and uh, doing things to actually be searchable when it came to financial planning and wealth management. Certainly the keywords millennial, wealth management, financial advisor. Like I was the first to even go down that road in a traditional setting, which meant almost nobody was going down that road on an SEO digital content setting. So 
I went headfirst into that and just started to optimize everything. And that got into writing consistently on a weekly basis, you know, creating graphics and memes and doing everything I could to create a, a, a strong digital footprint by ingraining myself in traditional finance media and, and that whole apparatus. You know, being a internet personality pays big dividends when it comes to being found online. I knew that to grow this business, it would be through those means and memes too, <laughs> uh, in order to, to get where I'm going here, to stand out, right? And while I knew I'd be going in that direction, I can't tell you, I, I knew it would result in a, a large, funny Twitter account or X, you know, the platform formerly known as Twitter. I had a feeling it would be a lot of mainstream media. I didn't know it'd be CNBC's advisor council where I get to do a lot of camera work. But I knew it would be something around that. And, and you found the pathways to pursue to make those things happen. And I'm not a person that you know, will be denied those things. So you, you find that pathway and uh, you, you go down it, you knock on those doors, you create, you push it out there and good things happen. And, and here we are, obviously, with uh, a lot to show for it, whether that was SEO or a social media platform or the ability to create content specific to millennials and knowing where your audience is clearly, you know, a very important, you know, thing to have down. Yeah, I, I don't exist on Facebook because that's where my parents and their generation are. You know, I exist on Instagram and and Twitter primarily, of course, LinkedIn and other sources, but you have to really know where, you know, ultimately the business that you want to attract is and be able to create on those platforms and optimize for those platforms. Yeah, I just want to clarify for people who don't know, Douglas has like over 200 and 40k followers on Twitter and one thing you do that's like different than most financial people is like you put out funny financial content like relatable funny some of it is like to the I do it with marketing content but like it is true but like there's like a funny twist on it like to make like it kind of like absurd because people are thinking about that but I know we talked about like in like five minutes ago that it's a very regulated industry. So how do you like balance the the funny and like yeah. the industry? Like and and also since fin finance is also like a very trusting thing like if I'm going to give you money, like I want to trust like how do you balance the funny, relatable but also come off as like an expert as well um in the industry? That's really a great question and something that kept me up at night a little bit when I first started to pursue that. The the humor and self-deprecation level humor, sometimes dark, cynical, you know, type stuff, which I guess I've become very known for uh, when making my my uh, tweets or, or posts, if you will. Yeah, I think that was a byproduct of being stuck at home during the pandemic, you know, before 2020, of course, memes and, and humor is humor's always been a thing in my life, whether it's online or I mean, what you see there is what you get here. You got to be able to laugh. Life's too short not to laugh, even dark and morbid stuff. You know, there's a professional way and an appropriate way to laugh. And of course, there's obviously ways in which it's just very tone deaf and, and can really hurt you, which you're kind of pointing to here. How can you joke around losing money or bad markets when you yourself are out there trying to help people with their money? Um, I think those with a good head on their shoulders understand it's parody and satire. Um, and it's through parody and satire that we find a human element within all of us. So that creates the relatability. Number two, um, I never attack any group or make, I really try not to make fun of anyone, uh, which is very hard to do um, in choosing sides. I'm 
outright making fun of people, but just having a strong opinion means that you're clearly going to upset or not get along with someone for having that stance because they think the opposite. So self-deprecating and, and making me the object of what's being made fun of here always wins. You're, you're going to win more friends that way because you're making fun of yourself, not not really anyone there. So that, that was another component to it. But yeah, it was I, 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 you know, I try not to curse. I try, you know, there are professional boundaries that I don't cross because I, I am a certified financial planner. I'm a professional. I've been doing this a long time. I have hopefully a good reputation and, and I, I, I do have a good reputation in the in the uh, community and in the profession. And I was hoping that, you know, I wouldn't tarnish that or people, you know, hopefully wouldn't misunderstand what I was trying to do. And uh, I got to tell you so far, it really hasn't gone wrong. You know, um, I think in the height of, you know, 2020, 2021, you could make some jokes that, you know, on any given day when people were getting canceled, you could have said something pretty innocuous. Uh, I think I made a Tesla joke once and, you know, somehow, you know, people took it the very, very wrong. How they, they just did. And, you know, crisis was averted. But yeah, it got it got fiery. So you have to be very careful. And I think the reason I'm able to succeed at that is just because there's a ton of media training behind it. I majored in public relations and communication. So I have an academic background in comms. I've been cracking jokes and making witty remarks my whole life. So I know what plays and what doesn't play. I know my audience very well. And I think because I have credentials backing me, like there's a nice litany of, you know, things and accomplishments that demonstrate I, I do know what I'm talking about. Like if you actually took a second to look behind the humor and see who's saying this to you, you'll see like, oh my goodness, that's why a lot of that is really just me flipping things on their heads or being, you know, bombastic or silly with something that's serious in hopes that you'll take a minute to learn a little bit. Well, why is that funny? Why is he being ridiculous? You go learn about it. You you just accomplish something I hope that you know, would get accomplished, whether that's financial education or literacy or just, you know, knowing what's going on around you, at least in the financial world. I also think it takes deep financial expertise in a field to be able to crack jokes that resonate with the people who understand that field. I think it's hard in me in the marketing realm, like if I was just starting in marketing, I wouldn't have been able to do the same type of jokes as now that I've been in marketing for 10 years, like understand how to crack a joke about marketing. So I think you being able to crack jokes shows that you have a deep understanding about what you're talking about. Cause I think if you didn't, you probably would get canceled more often if you didn't understand like the field you're in. So it does show deep expertise if you can be able to crack jokes about a field you're in. Yeah, navigating that is is something you you definitely have to be mindful of. Um, it can go wrong. It really can. And if you if you don't do it right, it'll probably do more harm than good. I think we're getting to a point though where people find out I'm a real person, like online through through the platform, and uh, it blows their mind. They think it's a AI generated avatar. When it, nope that that's a real picture. That's really my face, and uh, that's really my family. Or I'll say something serious or heartwarming and nice and um sure enough uh you know they'll be like what there was no sarcasm there where i'm waiting for the joke and it makes that actually quite effective but uh you know when you're jumping your own shark of yourself there's also something you want to be a little bit mindful of there 
last question I have for you is what is a marketing hill you would die on? Uh, let's go with memes will always be effective. I, I think mimetic forms of marketing and, and tools will, will always be funny. I think they'll morph into different ways that we display them. I mean, you go back to like memes of uh, yesteryear, uh, you know, yeah, the penguin going two different ways or, you know, the little kid pumping his fist. These were, these were the early, early like templates. And now you see it, you know, overnight, like uh, what's the guy? King of Queens uh, actor, Paul Blart. I forget his name. It's evading me right now. Um, out of nowhere, like his stock Yeti photo like became a meme. I mean, Taylor Swift cheering uh, at the Kansas City games, overnight memes, like information travels so fast. And we're able to take these videos and images of, of people in pop culture or relevancy or not, and turn them into something that's relevant around. And they're pervasive, right? It does, it's not just for financial services. That same image or meme can be used in any industry uh, to describe any you know, thing going on in anyone's life, um, I think, you know, it's a common denominator. So, you know, they're not silly, childish things. Um, they're actual, you know, ways of communicating and resonating with large swaths of people. Um, and I think they'll only get more sophisticated. Uh, I can't wait to see what the meme templates of the future look like. So I'll, I'll die on that hill. And uh, the, I guess as a follow up to that, it's that the anti-sale thing that we talked about, I, I really don't think it's going to go out of fashion anytime soon. And I think that's because of the abundance of information that people have at their fingertips. Like you can now verify, fact check, do due diligence on almost anything. Uh, there aren't any gate they, like gatekeepers of information have really gone by the wayside now that you know everyone has a supercomputer in their hand capable of not just Googling anymore, but talking to a chat bot. So you're only going to see that you know proliferate more and more. I think people don't realize that now the amount of research we could do is 10x, actually, let's say 1,000x what we could do before. Before, when you were selling to people, it was either you, either it was like a third party, a gardener, whatever, was it, or like a financial institute was promoting you, or you were doing educational material on the stuff. Now you, you have to do educational material that's 10x better than what's on the internet to be at stand out because someone could go research what is a 401k tomorrow before like you would, they would have to go find a book what a 401k was. Um, so yeah, I mean, on the investment management side alone between robo advisors and being able to trade for free and get information for free, you can do all this stuff yourself, nothing's stopping you. So the value proposition around helping people with investments while it's not completely gone, there's tons of value, especially with people who don't have the time to do it. But for people who do, they now have all the tools and resources, and that could be a cost savings to them, assuming they want to do that. But on the advice side, sure, you can spend your time learning a lot, but at the same time, I'll look around corners that perhaps other people can't because it's not their profession. You know, I wouldn't go out there and say I'm a mar I'm good at marketing, but I'm no SEO professional. I don't know how to do a lot of those things. I've used them to my advantage and and hired them. So, yeah, that 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 rings uh, very true and. Uh, we're going to only see many professions struggle or have to adapt to a changing landscape when it comes to how technology specifically, uh, now AI on the rise, is going to disrupt their own value propositions. And I think 
actually positively um, that there's an opportunity here to use these tools to increase one's value proposition. It's those who can't figure that out that will find their value proposition decreasing. Last thing I have for you is where could people find you, follow you, anything you want to talk about about yourself? Yeah, the biggest initiative right now is uh, a newsletter that my wife and I write uh, leading up to uh, a book, uh, our second book that we're writing. Uh, the newsletter is called The Joint Account. Uh, we're writing about couples and money, so helping couples have better conversations around money, how to have those conversations. It's a weekly newsletter uh, that we write on Beehive, so uh, thejointaccount.beehive.com. But you can check out any of my profiles on social media and click the link tree and get access to everything we're doing. There's other newsletters that we write as well around millennials and money and a whole list of topics. So be sure to check that out. Get your laughs on Twitter. And of course, uh, a growing wealth management practice. So for individuals who need uh, help navigating their financial lives, uh, you know, just Google the name or hit up any of those social media accounts and all pathways will lead exactly where you want them to go. First of all, it's a great name for a newsletter. Second of all, like I, I need to subscribe to that because I think, I mean, I just got married two years ago and I think like money conversations are always interesting conversations wherever you are in every phase they're different like from being dating to like being engaged to now and relationship like everybody does it differently so it's like cool that you guys are right and I like that it's a husband and wife writing it together that's cool that's fun appreciate that yeah it's a good one check it out it's it's this will be our lives definitely for the next two years are, and it'll all result in a book called The Merge where we really will navigate the power dynamics uh, between individuals when it comes to money and relationships. No no one's really diving into this or helping people have that condo. And, and it's very, very difficult conversation to have. We all have our own identities personally around money or lack thereof. We're trying to figure out what our identities are that are shaped by our upbringing, cultural backgrounds, religion experiences, trauma, all of that. And then what do we do? We find someone we love and we merge our identity with their identity. And it's just a hot mess, right? Now we got two messes coming together to a hot mess of a dumpster fire a lot of times. And navigating that is is generally emotionally fueled and very difficult to have. And we we wanna we want to work on that or at least provide a way for people to have that dialogue and strengthen relationships around it. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think it's emotionally fueled, but also like everybody grows up differently and like how their their parents taught them about money or like how they grew up with money and their relationship with money is all different to what you and then now you're merging two people who but their parents told them one thing about, hey, you should be in a 401k. Oh, you should be in an IRA. Oh, you should be not investing you should be saving are you like everybody has and then you did two taking two different opinions and trying to like come up with like an equal footing of what yeah it is. And that's the iceberg right influences from parents society religion backgrounds all of it we're, we're going to every time we talk to people we end up finding a new chapter to write about so that's a big mountain to climb the joint account will get us there in terms of helping people understand where we're going with that i can't thank you enough for having me on here it's an awesome podcast love that you're doing this thank you so much and i appreciate it thanks so much for listening tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators if you haven't already please consider subscribing to the marketing millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating It helps bring more marketers into our community.